Hello everyone, this is Kelly Reed from the SIOP Visibility Committee. I'm excited to welcome our 19th guest to the SIOP Conversation Series, Dr. Rose Mueller Hansen, the Associate Director and CFO of Community Interface Services. Before we start today's conversation, I wanna remind you that the majority of today's questions were submitted by you, our listeners. Um, you are joining today uh, with video off and with uh, being on mute, and we would ask that you kindly leave your video off for the entirety of the conversation. Also, a reminder that all episodes of the SIOP Conversation series are recorded and published as a podcast on iTunes and Google Play and are housed on the SIOP Conversation series landing page at SIOP.org. As our live listeners today will notice, our conversation does include video. As part of the Zoom platform, you have the opportunity to ask questions during the live broadcast using the chat feature on Zoom. Uh, Rose has graciously agreed to remain on the line for up to 15 minutes following our standard 30-minute broadcast to answer some of the in-the-moment questions you all might have today. Now, I'm happy to welcome Dr. Rose Mueller Hansen to our conversation. For over 20 years, Rose has dedicated her career to helping improve individual and organizational performance through better talent management. A strong advocate for creating more effective and engaging approaches to career development and performance management, she is the co-author of several recent articles on the topic and the book, Transforming Performance Management to Drive Performance. Rose is a co-recipient of the M. Scott Myers Award for Applied Research in the Workplace with colleagues from PDRI, awarded by SIOP. In 2014, she was elected a fellow in SIOP where she previously served as the chair of the Continuing Education Committee. She has presented her work at numerous national conferences and in a variety of publications. She is the past president of the Personnel Testing Council of Metropolitan Washington, DC. Rose is currently the associate director and CFO of Community Interface Services, a nonprofit organization serving adults with developmental disabilities. Prior to joining Community Interface Services, Rose was a Director of Talent Solutions at PDRI, a CEB company, and served in the U.S. Air Force. She received her doctorate degree in Industrial Organizational Psychology from Colorado State University. Rose, we are so thankful that you could join us today. Thanks, Kelly. It's really great to be here. Goodness, and what a uh, what a list of accolades and accomplishments! <laughs> I always say it always. Uh, I feel like I have to catch my breath whenever I read those bios. Um, whenever we're starting off these conversation series, so very eager to dive in and learn more about your story today. Um, Absolutely. So, Rose, many of our listeners submitted questions about how you chose your career path, um, and certainly it's one that uh, has led you through a variety of different experiences. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you got started in I.O. and your path in I.O.? Yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't one of those people who decided early on that they wanted to go into I.O. psychology for sure. Um, I actually was a business major in undergrad uh, because I thought that was a good path. And then I had this professor, this psych professor, who was absolutely brilliant and just inspired me to really want to learn more about psychology and how the mind works and why people do what they do. So I, I changed my major as a senior, which is not recommended uh, to psychology, and I was desperately trying to get psych classes to fill that major. 
And one of them was an IO class. Um, and to be honest, it was the most boring class I had ever had. <laughs> All this stuff about reliability and validity. And I thought, oh, I don't want to do that. Uh, so after undergrad, I went to work for nonprofit. In fact, the one I work for now, which is kind of a, a whole nother story. Uh, and I was providing direct services to people with developmental disabilities. And I thought, okay, this is interesting, but I'm actually more interested in how the organization itself works. How, how is it that we hire the right people for these very tough jobs? How do we help them navigate their career paths? Um, so I became more interested in HR and I actually got into an HR role in this organization and um, then thought, well, you know, I really, need to, um, I really need to further this with some grad school. So I had applied to clinical programs before and didn't get in and was pretty devastated by that. Um, but then I realized through this career journey that that wasn't the right path for me. Uh, so went to grad school for IO, loved it, um, found my passion, uh, and then shortly thereafter went to work for PDRI, which was an amazing experience. I got to learn from so many brilliant people there and do such interesting work with such great clients. Um, and then after 14 years, um, I uh, had an opportunity to come back to the West Coast, which is where I'm from, uh, to come back to the organization that um, I had worked at before, Community Interface Services. Uh, so I had stayed connected with them throughout all of those years, being in grad school and, and working at PDRI. I was on the board for a number of years. And so when an opportunity opened up on the senior leadership team, I really jumped at it um, because I felt like it was an opportunity, not just to get back to the West Coast, but to really do something that was close to my heart and, and very meaningful. Rose, thank you so much. And I, I think we had a number of questions from listeners really just asking you to share more about what, what it's like to work in nonprofit versus for-profit. So I don't know if you'd be willing to maybe elaborate a little bit on that for those that may be evaluating a similar type of decision. Yeah, I absolutely. I, I you know, I really um, love this this idea of working for a nonprofit. Um, I think first and foremost, there are a lot of similarities between a for-profit and nonprofit environment. Uh, so people think that if you're in a nonprofit, then you know money doesn't really matter, and you can just focus on the mission. And um, of course, money is important, right? Regardless of where you sit, because no money, no mission uh, is what we like to say. So we do have to worry about things like, how does the business actually function? Are we able to earn enough revenue to do all the things we wanna do to support our mission? So I think in a lot of ways, there are similarities. You have to focus on the fundamentals. You have to be cognizant of you know, costs and things like that. Um, I think both for-profits and nonprofits have a strong focus on people. Uh, so I worked for and with a number of for-profit organizations and not a one has ever said that they don't care about their people or talent management isn't important. Uh, everyone says that, right? Um, I think in a nonprofit environment, there are some key differences. One is obviously fewer resources, right? Um, you, you may not have access to as much funding as you do in a for-profit environment. And that may even be true of smaller, smaller for-profits, uh, maybe less access to resources. So it just means that you have to be a little bit more creative in some of the things you do around talent practices. You may not be able to buy the latest technology or hire consultants or purchase outside training programs. So you have to think about, well, what can we do ourselves? Can we build it ourselves? Can we get something for pro bono? Can we um, you know, create it internally? 
Um, so, I, you know, for me, some of those are, are, some of those things are the key differences. I guess the other thing I'd say is uh, in a for-profit environment, there is kind of this rhythm around the quarterly results, especially if you're publicly traded, that's just not present in the nonprofit environment. You still have to produce financials. You still have to please your board of directors, uh, but there's not quite the emphasis on some of the financials. So it sounds maybe a little bit like that uh, emphasis on creativity and resourcefulness, but then also potentially having a better, bit of a long-term view um, with regard to the, the people who are um, on the board or the, the shareholders. Mm -hmm, for sure. Yeah, I think, you know, the other thing is uh, people come to work for nonprofits because they're looking for meaning. And I think, you know, meaning is important to everyone in their careers, not just people in nonprofits. Uh, but in a nonprofit setting, we've had, for example, a lot of people come to us because they say, you know, we really, we're really focused on doing something different in our careers. So maybe you've been in corporate America or you've been in a different field and now you want to do something that's close to your heart. And so we've gotten a lot of new hires in that way. And I think that's been terrific. Thank you, Rose. And so to dive into that a little bit more, and thank you for that comparing and contrasting of the different environments with the for-profit and nonprofit. Um, let's talk about the talent strategies that you see. Do you see major differences in, in strategies like organizational performance, talent management strategies um, in the nonprofit versus the for-profit setting? Yeah, I think there are some key differences. Um, as I said before, I think everybody cares about their talent and is looking for ways to help people get more engaged, to enhance their careers. I think the, the key difference that I've seen, again, is that access to resources. So um, one of the things that we've had to do at Community Interface is, is really think creatively about things like performance management. So in a lot of for-profit organizations that I worked in, there's a strong emphasis on pay for performance and rewards and tying rewards to performance ratings. Uh, and I think in a lot of nonprofits, you just don't have that latitude with budgets. And so instead of looking to reward people directly for performance, um, we, for example, created a whole new career development program uh, COVID has kind of put the brakes on it a little bit, but we're still moving forward with it. And we're really excited because it's going to allow us to define what each stage of somebody's career journey might look like and how they reach those stages. And money would be a, a small part of it, but it's not the main thing. It's really about acquiring new knowledge, new skills, new ways of contributing uh, at different points in one's career. And it will allow people to grow not only vertically to get higher level positions, but also laterally. So um, I think we are just trying to be as creative as we can with, with a lot of our talent solutions. Um, another thing that we've been able to do is get some pro bono services. So BetterUp, for example, has um, offered a lot of coaching services pro bono, and it's been incredibly valuable because that's not something we could uh, ordinarily afford on our own. So I, again, it's just kind of looking for those creative ways to meet our talent needs. But I think a lot of the fundamentals are the same, regardless of if you're in a, a for-profit or nonprofit environment. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, so one of our listeners, Georgina Z, uh, would like to know, as a leader in talent management, how do you think we can foster more meaningful work from the perspective of talent management? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. I really love it um, because, again, I think everybody wants to have meaning in their work. 
Uh, I think obviously it's good for individuals. Uh, it's good for their emotional well-being to feel like they're doing something meaningful. It's good for the organization because it helps people be more engaged. It helps with retention. And again, I think a lot of people come to us because they're looking for meaning, but I think you can find meaning in any organization. Um, and so in our talent processes, I think we have a lot of opportunity to reinforce that meaning. So first off, I'd say we've got to go back to the fundamentals. How do we design our jobs? Do we have duties and responsibilities aligned to people that really help them connect what they're doing to the mission of the organization? Um, in our hiring practices, are we explicitly asking people why they want to work here? And are we listening for things that would help us understand if their values align to our organization's values? Uh, in our leadership development, are we teaching leaders explicitly how to communicate the value of what the organization does to people and where they fit in. Um, and in fact, I've seen this uh, have a huge impact. Uh, we used to do a lot of workshops at PDRI around performance management and helping leaders learn to set performance goals and things like that. And one of the exercises we did was to teach leaders how to, in plain language, communicate to people what the organization does, why it's valuable, and how that employee fits into that. And People said that that was one of the most valuable things that they've done uh, is really thinking about that and really having to practice communicating that to employees. Um, so I really think that there's a lot of opportunity for us in talent management to really weave that meaning into every aspect um, of somebody's career path. Do you feel like, um, and this may be a little bit of a leading question, but since COVID, I mean, do you feel like there's been any change in the importance of meaning at work in these past six to seven months? That'd be important for leaders to keep in mind. Yeah, I do. Um, what I've seen is a lot of organizations have really expressed sincere concern and caring about their uh, staff members and their well-being. Um, I've seen organizations really balancing some harsh uh, financial challenges with wanting to take care of people uh, and wanting to be flexible and accommodate them with childcare needs and working from home and flexible schedules. Um, and so I really think that that's in turn helped employees feel more connected to their organization. Uh, my organization has my back. I'm gonna in turn do what I can. Uh, and it's really, especially with some of the social justice issues that we've been facing, and I know that has nothing to do with COVID, uh, but um, I think it's given our organizations an opportunity to, to describe where they stand. Um, and for employees, I think that's been really helpful in terms of deciding whether or not this organization is one that fits with my values and it's one that I wanna support. Thank you. And a little bit of a turn here, but we had another listener uh, submitted a question that uh, organizations often have competing interests. How do you create a performance management system that balances both the administrative side, for example, who to, who to promote, and the developmental side, for example, helping to improve performance and build capability? Yeah, that's a really great question. It, you know, people have been talking for years about the tensions inherent in performance management. And one of them is, is what you just described. Uh, and Elaine and I talked about this in our book as well. So on the one hand, if you have a system whose purpose is to really drive employee development. So you wanna encourage coaching conversations, regular check-ins, you want honest conversations, uh, you want feedback, you want employees to seek feedback and seek development. 
that's great. But then on the other hand, you turn around and say, okay, but now we're going to rate your performance and we're going to use that rating to determine your raise, your potential for promotion. Um, and I think those two things just, they don't work well together. Um, there are too many things that are kind of shoved under the umbrella of performance management. Um, and as we've said many times, if a system that tries to do too many things does none of them really well. And so I actually think uh, the answer is not to keep trying to force fit these two competing purposes under the umbrella of performance management. I actually think organizations are better served making a distinction. Um, and what I mean by that is if your goal is to promote employee development and honest coaching and feedback conversations, then do that and focus on that and, and call it that, call it career development. Um, and then if you have another goal of also uh, differential pay and rewards and basing some of that on performance, then really focus on your compensation system and define your compensation system uh, in a way that helps you identify what are all the factors that go into giving somebody a raise or a promotion. Because performance, you know, really when you peel it back, performance is only one part of the decision to give somebody a raise. Uh, there's also the re reality of how much budget do you have? What does the labor market look like? Uh, what kind of year are you having in your organization? How much can you afford? So all these factors go into giving a raise. And in fact, I've seen um, a number of organizations very successfully kind of separate these things by having a career development program, maybe a performance management program that focuses on development, and then a compensation decision system that's separate. Uh, so when it's time to make compensation decisions, you're either making compensation ratings or you're using some decision tool to arrive at those decisions. And performance is a part of that, but it's not the whole picture. Um, and I think employees get that. And if you communicate it in a transparent way, it can be very valuable. Our next question is along the same lines, but just focused on the kind of front end of the, the talent management process and it's around hiring assessments. Um, so our listeners submitted a question is that hiring assessments are considered to be a best practice, but for many small and medium businesses, nonprofits perhaps, there are luxuries that maybe uh, can't be afforded. So what selection tools do you suggest for these organizations to help curb turnover and find the right candidates? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wish we could go out and buy uh, some off-the-shelf assessments because they make things efficient and we know there's a lot of research behind them that support it, but it's not in our budget. Uh, so what we've done is we've gone back to basics. We did a job analysis to identify the key skills that are important for our roles. And then we found ways to screen for each of those things. And what we did in our organization is actually create a matrix of all the skills that are important for our core roles and then how we plan to assess those without uh, off-the-shelf standardized assessments. So for example, integrity is very important uh, in our workforce. Dependability is very important. So how do we assess integrity without an integrity test? Well, one way is to ask people to give you their background and work history uh, in detail and then verify if what they've given you is accurate. So when we call references, it's not just to hear how wonderful the person is or all the great things they did at their last job, but to actually see, did the dates they gave us match? Does the job title match? Do the specifics match? Um, and we found that to be a great predictor um, of integrity. If somebody can't tell us a coherent story and we can't verify it, 
then that's a challenge. Um, another thing is values alignment, as I've talked about before. So really asking people explicitly in the interview, um, why do you want to work here? Uh, tell us about your past jobs. Why did you want to work there? What did you like about it? What didn't you like about it? So we use a structured interview to get out a lot of those things that um, we might have otherwise done with an assessment. Um, the other thing that we have a, a bit of a different problem, I think, than some organizations in that uh, before COVID, um, you know, unemployment was low. Um, in our industry as a whole, turnover tends to be high. It's hard work. Uh, the pay isn't terrific. And so uh, we're not looking to screen out qualified people. Um, we want to you know, screen in as many as we possibly can that are qualified. Uh, and so one of the things we've done is um, to make sure we have a really good realistic job preview. So we send people out on a short visit to actually observe the work firsthand and, because this work is not for everyone. And we really want to make sure that people understand what they're getting into. Um, so we have kind of a multi-phased selection approach. Um, and one of the phases is an assessment, but it's kind of a homegrown assessment. It's a, it's a written questionnaire giving scenarios to people and asking them how to respond, how they would respond. And it's not so much to grade their answers, but just to see how they think and uh, can they, you know, write a few sentences about uh, a topic in a coherent way. Um, and so we do use assessments, but they're just not off the shelf assessments. Okay. Again, resourcefulness and creativity. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Um, we, we had uh, a number of questions and we appreciate you bringing up um, COVID as COVID continues to be a dominant force impacting the world of work. Many IOs are trying to better understand the impact of the pandemic on organizations and their employees. We had several audience submitted questions related to COVID, including submissions from listeners Mitchell G and Christopher R. How do you think the pandemic has changed the focus of IO psychology in the world of, of business and work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, great question. I think that's still evolving, right? And uh, will continue to evolve as the pandemic progresses. Um, what I've seen is a big shift uh, in emphasis, right? We've, we've had to really um, think about how do we take care of our people? How do we keep people healthy? Uh, so health and wellness is um, emerging as a very important topic. It was important before. I think now it's even more important. Uh, I also think that change management obviously has been very important. So for example, we've had to change the entire way we've done our work uh, at Community Interface Services. So we started out, um, our history has been delivering mostly in-person services. And um, when the pandemic hit, of course, we had to stop a lot of our in-person work um, and quickly regroup and think about how we were going to deliver services online. So this required not only new technology, it required new ways of working for staff members, especially while they were balancing uh, their own health and wellness concerns, childcare issues, you know, you name it, family issues. Um, so we had to balance those two things. And then we had to train people how to deliver services online because we weren't doing that before. And so all of that was a huge change management issue. And so as an IO, I think I've had a unique opportunity to contribute not just in traditional talent ways, like, okay, what are we going to do about performance management this year, uh, but also uh, larger change management issues in the organization. How are we going to help people make this shift? What kind of training do they need? What resources do we need to look for? Do we need to uh, 
procure any additional technology. So these are areas where IOs may or may not have had a, a big role, uh, but I see a huge opportunity for IOs and talent professionals to really make a much more strategic uh, contribution to the organization by being more embedded in how the work gets done. And if we have to change the way we do our work, you know, what are the things that we need to consider and how do we need, how, how do we help people make this shift with technology, with training, with resources, tools, policies, procedures, communications from leadership. Um, so I really see this as a potential huge opportunity for IOs to have a more strategic impact in the organization as a whole. And I'd be curious to dive a little bit deeper into what you mentioned, because I think you touched briefly on this balance that people are having to strike. And there's so many different examples of the way that that balance is playing out, right? It's uh, multiple kind of competing priorities or tensions that have emerged or have become um, exacerbated by COVID. And so one of the things I would be curious about, um, Rosa, is what tips you might have or strategies you might have to offer people who are in IO settings, whether it's in um, applied settings or IO researchers that are trying to figure out how do they address current priorities while preparing for future challenges and opportunities. Have you um, come across any strategies that have seemed to, to be successful um, in navigating that? Mm, yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, you know, I think, uh, first of all, communication is key, right? Um, just being in touch with what's going on in the organization, uh, what are people being challenged by? So, for example, we've put out a couple of different surveys just trying to solicit input about you know, what's going on with people that you serve, for example, uh, do they have access, uh, do they have challenges with access to technology? Um, what's going on with you? You know, just really emphasizing communication, gathering information on what's going on with people, how they're doing, uh, using that then to think about, okay, then what do we need to put in place? Um, do we need better technology, more technology? So I guess I would say the, the key for me has been kind of iteration. We can't just look at the situation, make a plan and say, okay, we're done now. <laughs> we have to keep going back out to the well uh, to see, okay, how is that working? And we've seen this in our own organization time and time again, um, where we start with one strategy. You know, for example, when COVID first hit, we all thought we would be out for a few weeks and then everything would go back to normal. Uh, and clearly that didn't happen. And now we're not sure you know, what normal's ever gonna look like in the future. It may be for us that we always have some kind of hybrid model where we're doing online and in-person services. So how do we change that then for the long-term? Um, I, I think, um, you know, we have to just keep looking ahead and contingency planning. So if this happens, we're gonna take these actions and then um, we're gonna have a plan B um, if something else happens. So it's almost like more frequent rapid cycles of sensing, learning, and adapting, contingent yeah. planning versus strategic planning, that kind of thing. Interesting. Okay, that's very helpful. Thank you. That's a good segue to our, our next question here from our one of our listeners. With more employees working remotely than ever, what changes do you think this will have on performance appraisal and performance management? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that's an interesting question. Um, and again, one that's still evolving. Um, so I I've heard from a lot of organizations that have decided to pause 
their performance appraisal cycles. So they're either slowing down ratings or not doing ratings. In our organization, we actually decided to go ahead, um, but in a much more streamlined way uh, because we need it for some, some compliance reasons. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting for those organizations who decided to just hold off on ratings altogether. Do you really miss them? You know, if, if several months goes by without having a rating and we all kept working and, and getting along just fine, it does really cause a call into question how much those ratings are needed. And so I think a lot of the trends that started before COVID in performance management are now more important than ever. So more frequent check-ins, more regular coaching and feedback. Uh, those are things that people have been talking about for years. Um, and in some cases, as a replacement for ratings, right? A lot of high profile organizations have said, we're getting rid of ratings and instead we're moving to this more frequent cycle of check-ins. Um, I think that model actually works very well in COVID, right? So for us, for example, since everybody's remote, we can't do the in-person meetings uh, and one-on-ones that we used to. So now we've asked uh, supervisors to reach out to people on a very regular basis to check in, uh, to talk about what's coming up in the work, to really give people tools on how they organize their work, uh, give people feedback on how it's going. You know, the ratings take a backseat to all of that because if we really want to help people navigate this time and navigate change, it is much more about that real-time guidance, coaching, feedback that happens in the context of work rather than a backward-looking evaluation that happens at the end of the year. Um, so I, I actually hope this, this uh, crisis might accelerate that change in performance management. And so Rose, what do you then, what do you say? Because I'm sure you probably get this question all the time when people ask, well, gosh, if we get rid of our performance ratings, then what does that mean for how we handle our performance-based compensation decisions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, you know, people just go right to that question. And it's a legitimate question because the bottom line is you still have to make decisions about people, whether it be pay, promotion, career opportunity, and you want to do that in a fair and transparent way. And so then the question is, well, how can we possibly be fair and transparent if we don't have ratings? Um, so we talk a lot about this in the book that, that Elaine and I wrote, but you know, first and foremost, I would say, well, take a look at what you do today and ask yourself if you really are using performance ratings as a driver for decisions, or is it the other way around? Have you already made the decision and you're using performance ratings to back it up? So that's, that's one thing to really think about. I think a lot of managers would tell you, I know who my best people are and I make the ratings kind of fit that if I have to, to justify the decisions. Um, I think the other thing is, is, as I alluded to before, there's real value in separating those processes. Um, so I worked for an organization in a consulting role uh, that did this very well. They actually had a whole compensation rating scale that they developed that was separate from their performance rating process. Uh, and that scale, yes, performance was one component of it, but a bigger component for them um, was the skill that the person brought to the table and the difficulty in replacing them. Because they knew from a compensation perspective that you know, there's some people we've just got to pay more because the market will pay more for their skill set. It's a rare skill set. It's critical to our business. Um, and yes, of course, you know we're not going to 
give them a big raise if they're not performing. Uh, but it's even more important for them to have this skill set. And so that was a huge driver of their compensation. And that's frankly a very easy and fair way to explain to employees uh, in terms of how you got a raise. Hey, we looked at not, you know not just your performance, but also uh, the level of skill that you bring, um, the difficulty of replacing this type of skill. And uh, if you want to then earn more, if you think you should be earning more, then you can go out and increase your skills. And that's, that's much more empowering to people than being told, well, your manager gave you a three because that's the average rating in the organization. So therefore you got an average raise. Rose, thank you so much. That is incredibly helpful and insightful. Um, I will tell you, uh, as is always the case on the, the conversation series, we have far more questions <laughs> than we have time today. Um, so the, unfortunately, that, that's all the time that we had today for the recorded portion of our broadcast. To our podcast listeners, thank you for tuning in. Rose, on behalf of SIOP, the Visibility Committee, and all of our listeners, thank you for an incredibly insightful and informative conversation and for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Kelly. I appreciate it. And to everyone listening, please join us for our next conversation on Wednesday, November 11th, where we will be joined by Dr. Stephen Rogelberg, a Chancellor's Professor of Organizational Science, Management, and Psychology, and the Director of Organizational Science at UNC Charlotte. Our future lineup also includes the likes of Eden King, Richard Landers, and more leading minds in I.O. Until next time, take care.